Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard Podcast. Our mission is simple. Find God, find others, find yourself. That's it. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information on Reveal, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. So I want to begin a conversation today, or this morning, about the least of these. And so my hope is that over the course of these next two weeks, we'll really take a look at what God has to say on this issue of those in this world who are poor and marginalized. I promise that'll be my last drink break. Now, originally, um, I had titled this message, A New PR Strategy. Because when it comes to the church, and when I say church, I'm speaking about the global church, we desperately need a new PR campaign. However, I shamelessly changed it to Crumbs from Your Table so that I could plug a U2 song title and feel cool 10 years ago. So, no, I'm just kidding. No, I actually was hoping the band would play this song uh, this morning, but Jared had informed me that no one listens to U2 anymore, just aging pastors who still think they're cool, apparently. Um, so, moving on. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So, anyhow, in the United States alone... The perception of the church from those who would consider themselves outsiders to the church is not good. And I'm sure that's not a shock to you. And the truth is, is that the church has not helped itself in this endeavor. And then to make matters even more complicated, we have TV preachers out there, you know, kind of acting as if they represent all of us in their views when in fact they, they don't. Um, there was a Barna research um, study done several years ago. And they looked at the landscape of religion in the United States. And specifically, they focused in on the, the Christian church. And their publishings, they, um, that they, 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 their findings, I should say, were published in a book called Unchristian. Now, when I read this book, I thought, you know what? I wish every follower of Christ would read this book. Because it would really kind of open our eyes to how we, you know, portray ourselves to those that are outside the church. And it would help us just to take some things to heart to make sure that we don't create this perception that those outside the church have of us. Now, their research showed that there's a growing trend, a scary trend really, uh, that more and more people are disconnecting from the church in the United States and choosing to become outsiders because they don't like what they see inside the church. They don't like what they see when they're outside looking at the church. And the most alarming fact is that that trend is growing more rapidly among the younger generation. So those that are, that are 40 and under, and especially those that are a generation behind us that are coming in, that that generation is getting further and further away from the church. And so when you kind of look at the landscape, those that are most connected to the church kind of dying off, you know, no disrespect. And then those that are coming into the church, they're saying no thanks. And part of that is on us. Now part of the research also took a look at the reasons why so many are turning away from the church. Now, again, you've probably heard this list and hear a lot. We, we, we throw it out there. Um, but those outside the church see Christians as hypocritical, insincere, homophobic, sheltered, political, and judgmental. And here's the thing. Whether you've been guilty of all of these, some of these, or none of these, it doesn't matter. This is how those outside the church see us. And so we've been known for far, 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 far too long for what we oppose and not who we are for. 
And so the reason that I had changed the name of this message to Crumbs from Your Table is because for me, that song was really a wake-up call for the church when it came to dealing with the issue of global poverty. At one point in the song, the lyrics read, where you live should not decide whether you live or whether you die. Three to a bed, Sister Anne, she said, dignity passes by. You speak of signs and wonders, but I need something other. I would believe if I was able, but I'm waiting on the crumbs from your table. So we can either debate all these points and why the perception is wrong, or we can start giving people a reason to think otherwise. Now, the truth is that we used to have a great reputation. Uh, the historian Alexand- uh, Clement of Alexandria, when he was describing a person who had become a follower of Jesus, he wrote this. He, meaning the Christian, the new Christian, impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. That's pretty profound. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. You know, when devastating plagues would sweep through um, the ancient world in the third century, it was the followers of Jesus that would come in and care for these people. And at many times, putting their own lives at risk of contracting the disease and dying. In fact, the pagans, they would take their family members and throw them out into the streets before they even died because they were so afraid of contracting the disease that was sweeping among those, those, those nations. One of the more famous quotes about the early church is from Tertullian in AD 197 where he's actually quoting pagans who are looking or speaking about followers of Jesus. And he says this, look, as he's quoting them, they say, how they love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. So you see, the reputation that the church had was one of simply loving other people. So when they saw genuine needs, they would do whatever they had to do or sacrifice whatever was necessary in order to meet those needs. Now, if we're being honest, the problems that get presented to us today, whether it's through social media or websites or email blasts, they create a lot of tension in us. Because, you know, there's all these things. Children need shoes. The homeless need coats and blankets for the winter. Of course, we're talking about homeless that live outside of Phoenix. The disabled in third world countries need wheelchairs. Numerous communities need clean water. Families need food. Children need immunizations and education. Slaves and sex trade workers need to be freed. The poor and marginalized need justice. And the list goes on and on and on. And if you try to take it all in, it will overwhelm you. I'll never forget the day I watched the movie Hotel Rwanda. Now, for those of you who don't know, Hotel Rwanda is, is, a, is a movie based on, on, on a real-life events that took place in Rwanda back in the spring of 1994 where an estimated 800,000 people were slaughtered in a genocide. And millions of others were displaced uh, from their homes as they were fleeing for their lives. Now, my daughter was, was newly born at the time, and during one of her naps, I'm watching this film with a buddy of mine, and as we're watching this film... I was horrified. I I was so disturbed by what I was seeing because what I was watching was something that actually happened. And what bothered me wasn't the fact that I didn't do something to stop it. I mean, the reality was the situation was beyond anything I could have done. 
It was that I never took any notice of it. Ten years went by before I was even aware that this situation even happened. Honestly, I, I, I was sickened. I remember just, you know, sitting there, you know, as the credits were rolling and thinking, you know, all this is going on, yet in my quiet little life with all my comforts, I never took notice. Never took notice. And so as I was sitting there just contemplating, you know, kind of taking a, an inventory of my own life, you know, I, I didn't want my life to be about myself. That I needed to start doing things that were going to make a difference in this world. Because it wasn't okay just to sit back and do nothing when stuff like that was taking place. And so after a series of events, I actually helped start a nonprofit organization uh, that was focused in Liberia. Now to summarize, because we don't have that much time, my experience would be to simply say that it flopped. Um, I had great intentions, but no success. And so I left that experience feeling discouraged and humbled and, and really helpless. Um, and so I just kind of tapped out. I didn't see how I could really bring a solution to the table. And so for sanity's sake, I just checked out. Because it was overwhelming to think that nearly half of the world's population live on less than $2 a day. And that 20%, 1.2 billion people live in what the UN calls extreme poverty, which is less than a dollar a day. And then it hit me, it was like, okay, so the difference between poverty and extreme poverty is a dollar a day? That's crazy. It it was mind-blowing. And and again, what haunted me as I kind of checked out wasn't this, you know, fact that I wasn't going to be the next Bono in Liberia. I knew that going into it. But what left me unsettled was that as a follower of Jesus, I wasn't excused from responding to the needs that still existed just because I failed the first time out. God didn't say, hey, you gave it the old college try. It's all good. Don't worry about it. No, that, that's not what he said. He said, you need to get back up and get back in the game. And let's figure something else out. And so when I feel inadequate and ignorant in any situation, I read and I pray a lot. Now let's just say that I've been married for 18 years. I've read a lot of books on marriage. Um, you can laugh at that, trust me. This, this is kind of a heavy message, so take advantage of those moments to chuckle. And so I would read, and as I'm reading, I would just say, okay, God, what am I supposed to do with this knowledge? And so I, I dug into the Bible. What does God's word have to say on this issue? I picked up several books that dealt with the issue of global poverty from a Christian perspective. And so what exactly does God have to say on this issue? Because if you're, you know, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that's really the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what popular opinion says. It doesn't matter what your great-grandmother says. Unless I got my love for you, Gigi. It matters what God's opinion is because at the end of the day, it's his opinion that matters about anything. So right off the bat, we come across Psalm 113.7. It says this. He, meaning God, lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. Now right away we see that regardless of what I think or what I do, God sees these people. He takes notice of them. And not only does he take notice of them, but he helps them. He cares for them. He attends to them. Now, just in case you look at that version, you kind of think, well, well that's kind of my out. Yeah, God's got this. I don't need to worry about it. Proverbs 28, 7, 27 says this. Whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing. Well, that's good. I like that. But those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. That's a little more aggressive. That's pretty clear. A little uncomfortable. 
but it's clear. One of the more interesting verses that I came across was from Ezekiel. You know, many people debate about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you haven't read that story, you should read your Bible. It's very interesting. And a lot of people debate about why God decided to pull the trigger and destroy the cities. But I like what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 16, 49. Here's what the prophet says. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins. So I wiped her out, as you've seen. Now, you can exhaust yourselves debating about what those detestable sins are, or you can go back to the first part of that message, which is pretty clear, and go, ah, here's something to take note of. There were people in want that had need, and yet people in that city ignored those needs. They had plenty. And instead of sharing in their abundance, they consumed it. And let's be honest, most likely they wasted it. Now, this verse is very challenging for me because I've grown up in the United States. I love being an American. I love this country. I love my freedom. I love the way life I have. And I have enjoyed all the luxuries that I've had the ability to experience in my life up to this point. Even though I would not consider myself to be rich by American standards. But what gave me cause to pause was this idea of how much of what I've had was really supposed to be for my consumption and how much of what I had and have was really meant for me to give away. And the truth is, is I never stopped to ask. I just assumed it was mine. I worked for it or got it from someone else. I don't know, but it's mine. It really gave me cause to pause. In the book of Deuteronomy, you know, a major portion of that book is basically Moses instructing the Israelites who are about to take over this promised land that God was going to give them. And as they're going to go in, he's like, all right, here's your pep talk. As you go there, here's how you need to live. You represent God to the rest of this world, so these are the things you need to do in your everyday life. And in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, he says this, But if there are any poor Israelites in your town, when you arrive in the land your Lord your God is going, uh, giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for canceling debts is close at hand. This had something to do with a, a thing called Jubilee. I can explain that to you later if you want. But if you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Personally, that's that's the only verse I really needed to hear because it was pretty clear. I needed to embrace God's way of life for me. I needed to, you know, look out for opportunities to simply be helpful to others. Now, nowhere in that passage does it talk about eradicating poverty. It just says to be generous. It doesn't call me to be an aesthetic and live without AC in Phoenix. It just asks me to meet the needs of other people. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but there in that passage, there's also something that really deals with our hearts. And it's calling those of us out who have been hard-hearted toward the poor or mean-spirited. Now, I have to confess on this one. There are times where I'm really bad at this. 
Because I'll blame someone's stupidity for their poverty or their ignorance or their stubbornness. You know, that's what got them into this mess. So why should I have to clean it up? I've had those thoughts. You know, I, I find myself evaluating the condition of the shoes of panhandlers on the street corners. You know, I'm looking for any nice watches that they have. You know, do they got a cell phone in their pocket? You know, how, how tattered are their clothes really? And then, of course, my wife will, you know, come up with some really long stretch rational, you know, rational explanation for, you know, why I'm basically being an idiot. Um, And the point is that in those moments when I allow my mind to feed into that thought stream, I'm becoming hard-hearted and mean-spirited. And even though I might be right, he may be a total con artist. It doesn't matter. I'm dead wrong in my attitude and in my heart. I love how Paul sums this up in an even more simplistic way in his letter to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4.28, he says, if you are a thief, this is, this is revolutionary, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. So in other words, if you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing, stop it. Be a hard worker and look out for those who are in need. Any questions? Seems pretty straightforward. And then finally, in a personal letter to Timothy, Paul gives Timothy specific instructions to those of us who are rich. Now, in case you're wondering, by worldwide standards, most Americans are rich. You can debate that over coffee if you want. I'm just telling you what the rest of the world thinks. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 18 says this. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need always being ready to share with others. So, in looking at what God's word has to say about this issue of poverty, there shouldn't be any mistaking his intentions for us to engage it. The real question is how and to what degree are we supposed to be involved? Now, when Jesus came to this earth, he came to reconcile all things. He came to restore the things that were broken in this world. So when we talk about the plight of the poor... We're not simply trying to pull these people above some statistical poverty line. We're trying to do something that's far greater than that. We also need to restore what is broken inside of them. I love this quote from one of the books that I read dealing with this issue in the book, uh, When Helping Hurts, authors Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert said, North American audiences tend to emphasize a lack of material things such as food, money, clean water, medicine, housing, etc. This mismatch between many outsiders' perceptions of poverty and the perceptions of poor people themselves can have devastating consequences for poverty alleviation efforts. And what they're referring to is that earlier in the book they stated that when poor people were referring to themselves, poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. And honestly, I think one of the greatest hurdles for Americans is the concept of a slow and steady pace. We're not very patient as a nation. The other hurdle is being focused on the individual and not just the numbers. See, our goal shouldn't simply be to give someone something they need, 
but to come alongside them and help restore that person. In his book, Walking with the Poor, Brian L. Myers said this, Poverty is a result of relationships that do not work. They are not just. They are not for life. That are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom or peace in all its meanings. So in reality, the poor of this world are very similar to us. They're broken people who need peace in their lives. The fall really happened, and it's making a mess in this world, just like this microphone has given me a headache. Our relationships have either strengthened us or they're tearing us down. And so we're all broken in some way, just in different ways. And so our goal then is to help people be reconciled to the same key relationships that you and I need to be reconciled to. They need to be reconciled to God, to themselves, to other people, and to creation. So poverty alleviation is just as much about heart change and relationship building as it is about material needs. So where do we start? Well, I like to tell people, start locally and then expand globally. There are plenty of needs in our backyard. We just got to open our eyes and see them and then actually pay attention to what God is pointing out to us. I will never forget the, um, the first time that I really felt God speak clearly to me when it came to engaging someone who was homeless. I was uh, managing restaurants uh, back in the day over at Getro Center, Metro Center for those of you who don't know. And uh, one of the jobs that I had was to butter up all the concierges for all the local resorts. And so I would strap on this backpack of wine and fill it up with all these good cookies that we had. And I would go and just kind of, hey, you know, some people are at a restaurant. Here's a bottle of wine. Here looks nice. You know, that type of thing. And, but there was only one problem. See, my wife and I only had one car. And she was going to school, getting her sugar mama degree. And so she would drop me off at work and I'd have to hoof it. And so I would be walking several miles. Now, that part's not that hard. I mean, I can walk several miles. But I, there would be stretches where I would have to walk along the access road off of I-17. So a little hot, you know, a little dangerous. I didn't really think it was dangerous, but some people were like, you did what? And I remember one day I was walking, and as I was looking off into the canal, I see this homeless man sitting there. He's just kind of looking in the canal. I don't even know if there was water in it. I can't remember. Just like he was just looking at something. And he took no notice of me. And as I'm walking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually was, was praying. I was kind of having this little, hey, I'll take advantage of this time to kind of chat with God, you know, take some inventory in my life type thing. And as I'm walking, I'm like, hey, you know, Jesus probably go with that guy, hang out with him. As I'm still walking, you know, I didn't even look at him, didn't notice him. And as I'm walking, as clearly as I have ever heard God's voice in my life, I heard him say or something say or in my head say, go back to that man. And I actually just stopped in my tracks. I'm like, okay, I heard that. I'm not sure if I heard it, but I heard it. Nah. And I just kept walking. It came again. This time even stronger. And, and now I had this, this heaviness in my chest, like, like I couldn't breathe. Like, man, I'm, I feel like I'm going to fall into a, a state of depression if I didn't go back to this guy. And so I, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to say. And as I'm, I turn around and I'm walking back, I'm actually arguing with God. Like, what am I going to do? Give him a bottle of wine? Hey, bud, today's your lucky day. You know, it's like, what, what am I going to do? You know, I mean, yeah, a local Christian gives a guy a bottle of wine today. It's like, this is terrible. I'm like, what, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? And it's like, I don't know if it was God's voice, the Holy Spirit, or just my sarcastic conscience, but I very clearly heard it said, give him the cookies, stupid. 
give the wine to the concierge, give the cookies to this man. It's like, okay, whew, whew. Thank goodness I didn't have to give him a bottle of wine. And so I walk up to him. I say, hey, hey, um, I was walking by, and I really feel like God told me to come over here and just give these cookies to you and just let you know that he loves you. And then I asked him, I said, well, do, you, do you know Jesus? And I'll never forget the look on that man's face as he looked up at me and said, yeah, I know him. He had so much peace in his eyes. Yet he had the most unimaginable circumstances that I could fathom. It was something he had that I didn't. And that was amazing to me. And it caused me to think, you know, how many of those moments do I miss because I'm in such a hurried pace of life? I don't stop to look for opportunities where I could simply bless someone thinking that, I'm going to come in and do something good when really I'm going to walk away going, wow, that guy's got peace. No home, no car, probably no wife. Definitely doesn't have good hygiene. I've got all the things that he probably desires, yet he has peace. I didn't. It's pretty eye-opening. So what's in your backyard? Well, I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked. Schools. Schools are in your backyard. An easy way to start locally is to simply support what our nonprofit organization, Rive, is actually doing right here in the Dysart District. Whether you go through us or what you're doing on it, it doesn't matter. But currently, there are eight Title I schools in the Dysart District. We have a resource room in four of those schools. Yes, thank you. However, we want to put a resource room in all eight of those schools. Now, these rooms currently have school supplies for kids. There's clothing for them. There's hygiene items for them. Uh, there's even food to take home to some of their families. But there's a lot more that we can do with this. And the truth is, is there's no reason why the church in the Surprise in El Mirage area can't accomplish really this small task. So, if you need a first step in how to help alleviate poverty locally, just donate items. You know, help organize those materials. We keep them in a storage facility, and then we kind of track them back and forth. You know, help keep the resource rooms in the schools stocked, cleaned, and organized. I mean, you can even contact the schools and just ask them, hey, how can we support what you're doing? You know, is it spend time in the classroom and volunteer? Is it picking up trash on the weekends? Is it, you know, watching the middle school girls when they're having an estrogen fit during PE class? I don't know. I don't know what it is that they need help doing, but just ask them. They know what they need. They'll tell you. Now, here's the thing. If we're not impacting our local communities, we have no reason to expect people to want to join our cause and our mission in life. And personally, I can't think of a better way to create raving fans in our communities than to have an impact in our schools. Now, the second part, as I mentioned, is to act globally. So again, there are plenty of needs in our backyard, but the severity of the needs in underdeveloped nations are far too large to ignore. They're huge. Now, this is a tricky one because it's real easy to get spread thin in this area because there's so many ways to engage the poor in this world, and each need is worthy of our attention. However, you have to narrow your focus if you want to have an impact. For example, there are are seven countries in this world that make up 65% of the world's hungry. So again, 65% of all those people in the world that are hungry live in seven countries in this world. Revive, our nonprofit organization that we work with, does work in one of those countries, in India. There are seven 
that need our help. But because we want to have an impact, we choose to focus on one. And we have to trust that God is pretty big and he's pretty capable of communicating to all the other churches out there, all the other nonprofits, all the other philanthropists that are out there and helping coordinate them to hit all the countries that maybe we're missing. And it's okay. And this is one that, that, that I get tackled with a lot. You know, as a pastor, people go, oh, you know, we've got this thing going on in Eastern Europe. That's great. We're in India. Oh, but there's this thing in Africa. Come on, you got to come on over here and jump aboard. Hey, that's great, man. I pray God's success over you. But we're in India. This is where we're at. There's enough to do here probably for the rest of our existence. And it's not that we don't care about those other countries. We do. But if we want to have an impact, we've got to stay focused. And the truth is, there's some, some awesome things going over in India. We, we partner with a church over there, the Aradna Vineyard, and Pastor Emmanuel, who you, he's had the you know, chance to come up here and speak every now and then. They're doing some awesome things over there. And with the help of Revive, we're very close to opening a, a, a community center and hiring a teacher to provide education for families and children in the slums. And eventually, you and I will be able to support those children individually. And this is a game changer for these people. Now, if you're not involved in any organization abroad, okay, because maybe you don't trust them or you're not sure if the money's really going to them, I would hope that you can at least trust us. And again, hear my heart. I am not trying to sway you away from any organization that you're currently supporting. That's not my, that's not my goal. My wife and I support other organizations that are doing awesome work all across the world. I'm just saying if, you, if you're not doing anything and you want to start, Here's an opportunity right in front of you that you have an inside track on. And honestly, it's a great thing that they're doing over there. Now, I get the thoughts that we battle with in our minds. You know, am I really making a difference? Will this issue ever go away? You know, what can I really do? There are so many people in need. I get that. But I love a leadership principle that Andy Stanley often teaches. And it's this. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Don't worry about fairness. Don't worry about making sure everybody gets theirs. Just do for one. If we all did for one what we wish we could do for all, we would all make a pretty significant impact in this world. So don't worry about not making all these. I mean, you, you, those of you who had kids, there's times when you do things for just one of your kids, and your kids, that's not fair. It's not that I don't love you. I just only had the ability to do for one, so I did it. It's life. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Listen to these words from Jesus recorded in Matthew 25, verse 34 through 40. So Jesus is talking about the end times, you know, good people over there, bad people over there. Sorry, I got that reversed. Bad people over there, good people over there. And he's talking about himself, the king. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, the good people, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones were replied, and I imagine some, some, some hesitation here. Uh, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? Um, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked, don't want to go there, and give you clothing. When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, 
you were doing it to me. You know, it frustrates me to think about how poor the church has done at winning over the opinions of outsiders outside the church. Even if they don't agree with our theology, they should at least see us as the kind of people who care about others. But that's not what we have going on here. It's not the way people see us. And it's so frustrating to think that in all the things that God's word says, the one thing he's pretty clear about is that we're supposed to be about loving people. Pure and simple. Love others. Love God. And when you love others, you're loving God. So you're kind of doing the same at the same time. But that's not what we're known for. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of this world thinking that the only things we care about are the things we oppose. I'm tired of people's opinions about me coming from some televangelist that might be just months away from being exposed in some scandal. I want to be known for what we do. I want to be known for whom we love. And I want people to pause and think, now that has to be God. Because ordinary people wouldn't do that. Don't you? So look, I know that this is a hard one for some of us. And many of us, we just don't think we can make a difference. We think our efforts will be wasted and, you know, no one will notice. Therefore, our reputation will just remain the same. And research actually reflects this to be the attitude of most Americans. We hesitate to act because we assume that poverty will always exist. There's not enough people who care. There's not enough of a global effort that the enormity of the problem is beyond us. Or that corrupt governments, they're just going to squander it all anyway. Personally, I think part of the problem is that in our culture, we love to identify with things that are successful. And we run in the other direction from anything that sniffs of failure. So we're afraid to fail. So we don't want to partner up with something that's going to fail or has the potential to fail. You know, if we don't see an easy way to succeed, we just kind of go, hmm, I'll pass. Here's what I would say to all the concerns that you have, that I've had, that people outside this church have had. Even if all those things are true, and I don't believe that they are, it doesn't matter. Because in all that we see in God's word, he expects us to do something, to engage the issue. Now granted, he's going to expect more from some than others, but there's no loopholes for us. God doesn't say, hey, 